0: Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. If it's inspired you and you're able to support this independent podcast starting at just $2 per month, like a cup of tea, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. In light of this current coronavirus pandemic going on and the social distancing that's been happening, we also decided to open up our Green Dreamer network to any and all of our most passionate Green Dreamer listeners. So if you'd like to join our online community, and socially connect with other amazing and inspiring people as yourself, you can head to network.greendreamer.com to sign up. And I hope to catch you on the inside.
1: Light pollution affects us all, whether we know it or not. and um, It has impacts on all wildlife species. It wastes energy and it impacts and impairs our human health, leaves aside uh, our ability to view the, the cosmos.
0: Have you ever thought of artificial light as a pollutant? It's definitely the least discussed form of pollution in comparison to other things like air pollution and water pollution, but it's such an important one that we cannot leave out because of its impacts on our health and also the health, natural behaviors, and survival of wildlife, such as migratory birds, that navigate by moonlight and starlight. So we're going to hear all about this today from our guest, Ruskin Hartley, who after spending over 20 years in conservation, is now the Executive Director of the National Dark Sky Association, which is the recognized authority on light pollution that's leading the way in the mission to preserve the night globally. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
1: I grew up in southern England, and some of my earliest recollections are the classic childhood memories of playing out in the woods and the streams and the fields behind our house and being called in for dinner later in the day. It was before everyone had was plugged into the iPod. So really that was some of my first interactions and memories of being out in, in, in nature. And I remember going to a wood behind our house that I used to play in and coming back a number of years later and seeing it just cut down and, and that really brought me up wonder what was going on here. And that's really what led me in this path kind of just a love of being immersed in in, in the natural world.
0: When we talk about pollution today, we typically think of air pollution, water pollution, and even the contamination of our foods if they've been doused in agrochemicals. But this whole issue of light pollution seems far less discussed nor understood. And I would bet that a lot of people don't even know that light in of itself can cause harm or too much light. So how would you explain what exactly light pollution is to someone learning about the concept for the first time? And what is the historical context, as in since when did this really become an issue? You.
1: Uh, thank you for saying that. I mean, I, I'm a case in point here. I've been working in the conservation field for more than 20 years, working on forest conservation, working, working on water quality issues. And for 20 years, I really hadn't thought about light as a pollutant. Uh, I can vividly remember, in fact, in I think it was November 2018, when I first started learning a little bit about the work of the International Dark Sky Association on Light Pollution. I was living in the Bay Area at the time, driving back on the freeway from a soccer practice with my son, who was, I think, 12 at the time, and he's kind of zoning out in the car, and he said, hey, Dad, can we go home and watch some old movies? And I'm like, that's a strange question, but yeah, sure, Rome, we can do that. Why are you interested in watching some old movies? And he said, well, because I want to see what the stars look like. And that really brought me up in realizing that light pollution is this all-pervasive pollutant that most people don't think about against all of those other forms of pollutants. It's actually one that we can solve. We can literally solve it at the speed of light. Light pollution affects us all, whether we know it or not. And it has impacts on all wildlife species. It wastes energy, and it impacts and impairs our human health, leaves aside our ability to view the the cosmos. So that was really my first introduction to light pollution there, and the fact that it, it's so readily solvable.
0: Do we know when this really became an issue historically, like... Was it since the advent of the invention of light? Or when did this really start to affect wildlife?
1: Yeah, well, light, light pollution, when we talk about light pollution, we're really talking about artificial light. And we're particularly talking about artificial light at, at night. And I think we can date, I, I can't remember the precise date, but the basically the invention of the light bulb by Edison and others, you know, 100 plus years ago is really the point that we can point to where artificial light was kind of taken out of the realm of candles and put into sort of the industrial model. And what started with a few light bulbs has spread rapidly and continues to spread rapidly around the globe. And I think it was really only probably 20, 30 years ago that people really started to wake up to the impact that this all-pervasive lighting of the night was having on wildlife and and human society as well. We estimate light pollution, in fact, today is growing globally at the rate of 2% per annum. Mm. which is remarkable. It's basically outstripping population growth. There are some countries where light pollution is growing annually at 10% per year. Now, light is also really interesting. Light is a wonderful resource. I mean, light has brought so much, and the ability to light at night has brought so much to society. So we're, we're not saying that there should be no light at night, what we're saying, you need to be careful about the ways that you use light at night and be mindful of the myriad consequences it has as we continue to um, rapidly light our world.
0: Right. As you've come to realize, light pollution is something that environmental conservationists should really take into account. So, on this front, what do we know about how artificial light has been actually affecting or disrupting the behaviors of wildlife or the balance of our ecosystems?
1: Well, I mean, it starts from the simple fact that every single living thing on Earth evolved under an environment of uh, night and day, with the bright sunlight during the day and the dark night, and then looking at the the night at the rhythm of the lunar cycle. When there's a full moon out, it's fairly bright at night. And then when, when it's, there's no moon, it's, it's, it's very dim and dark at night. And that's the natural environment that every living thing has evolved in. We have basically flipped that environment now for most people. And for many animals, where we're lighting the places excessively at night and disrupting that. And there are a myriad of examples of organisms that are infected by light at night. Um, a few examples of that, for instance, the, the charismatic clownfish, the, the classic Nemo fish. And um, if you expose their eggs to artificial light, they don't hatch. Wow. Insect. Pollinators, we all know that you know, the classic is the moth is drawn to the flame. Well, insects are drawn to, strongly drawn to light. And more and more when people are talking about this massive and extremely worrying decline of insects and pollinators that really base our food chain, uh, one of the reasons that they, we believe that they're declining is by the introduction of light into the environment. So these, these insects are being drawn to the light and away from the plants. And it just goes on. Birds, I mean migratory birds in particular, are being drawn off their fly path into the sky glow from cities. And really that's I think the point here is this is the, the combination of these millions and billions of individual light sources is creating this massive sky glow around our cities, around our, our communities. So the light from our cities that we're using to, to light maybe the sidewalk or the pavement or, or whatever it is at night so we can get around and, and feel safe isn't staying within the cities it's traveling and propagating out for hundreds of miles mm. and for instance the lights of las vegas on the the brightest spots in in the us can be seen 150 200 miles away
0: wow Well, I feel like oftentimes environmental conservation is viewed as a conflict of interest and something that prevents humans from pursuing our interests. But we often forget that what's harmful to nature and to wildlife may be or probably is harmful to us as well. So what do we know about how light pollution and artificial light has been impacting our health as humans?
1: Yeah, the the impact on, on human health I think is one of the, the new frontiers and, and we're learning more and more every day about how artificial light and light at night is is impacting our health. And again, we, we are basically animals. We we grew up in an environment where we, we love the bright light during the day, the bright sunshine and those dark nights and, and our natural cycles entrained to the rhythm of night. Now, if we when we start to introduce artificial light and particularly bright and even dim sources of light at night, that, that has significant and measurable consequences on our health a lot of it goes back to down to um, some basic fundamental of human physiology around the production of melatonin often kind of known as the, the sleep hormone it's also an incredible antioxidant so artificial light suppresses the production of melatonin when you suppress the production of melatonin, there are all sorts of myriad of, of, of these diseases that are associated with that, from diabetes, obesity, and even even some forms of cancer. Now, actually measuring the precise dose and response measure, we're not there yet. It's not like we are with air pollution, where we have you know we can set parts per million and understand what the impact is. But it's clear that there are pathways between exposure to light particularly at night, and the impact on, on human health. Essentially, artificial light is one of, you know, is almost like a junk food. It's like a junk light when it's used incorrectly in and is associated with many of the ails of, of modern society. There are some very clear case studies, in particular, around shift workers who are exposed to um, bright light at night, In their workplace, it's very clear that they have negative health outcomes. And we're starting to learn, we're just at the frontier of learning more about the broader epidemiological impact of our lit cities and, and living in those.
0: And with the rise of laptops, smartphones, and people being addicted to our screens, I believe there's also more and more research showing how blue light in particular may be affecting our eye health as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, blue, I mean, I'm sure most people, if you've got your smartphone, you, you've been noticing recently that it, you have the option to sort of dim it and change the color palette at night to sort of warmer hues. And although those warmer hues are really ones that sort of mimic natural firelight and candlelight. Those, those warmer, riches, rich oranges and, and oranges and yellows, mm-hmm. those colors are, are, don't have much of the shorter wavelength blue light. And you know, the shorter wavelength blue light is, is much more energetic. And it's that shorter wavelength blue light that is so novel in the natural world. In the in natural world, it's really that short wavelength blue light that has been introduced more and more to the into the environment. And 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 it's interesting what's been driving a lot of that. That that a lot of the innovation in light recently has come around through the introduction of um, LED. Technology LED has the potential to be great. It it saves an awful lot of energy when it's done right, and um, we can now put these 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 light sources almost anywhere. Well, a lot of these white lights, these white LEDs, they're all essentially blue LEDs Mm. that are coated with some phosphor and other chemicals that then re-emit. That blue light into other uh, other wavelengths, and the, when that's blended together, you get this white color. Now, particularly the brighter, bluer ends of those are the ones that will cause glare, and they call they're much more disruptive to wildlife and, and human health. So, when you're looking for those opportunities, you now you want to be looking for more of the the warmer hues and warmer colors, which tend to have less impact on on human health and less impact on wildlife. they they do still contain blue. um, So they still are disruptive to the environment.
0: Right. It sounds like it's all about that balance from during the daytime, there may naturally be more blue light. And as it inches towards the nighttime, there's less of that blue light and more warmer hues in the light. So I guess part of this is just We've evolved with this day and night and the color spectrum of the light sort of evolving throughout the day for that to help inform our circadian rhythm.
1: Yeah, and that's really think one way I think about this. We, we, we've kind of affected it on both ends. At night, we light our environment. So at night when we're at home, we're maybe watching the television or we have the lights on so it's much brighter than we're historically used to. And during the day, we spend so much time indoors. And indoors, when we're indoors during the day, we're actually in a dimmer environment than we would have been outside. So there's some evidence, you know, the ways that you can protect yourself for your health and you know, go out and get exposure to that incredible, bright, beautiful sunshine right. and get yourself going. And it actually helps inoculate you against some of the brighter lights at, at night. There are actually some simple solutions to this. You no, know, it, it really is about making sure that you're careful and considerate about the use of light at night. Now, is the light that you're putting out, is there a clear use for it? Are you putting it where it's needed? Are you targeting it? Maybe there's a step or something that you're concerned that people might be slipping over. Are you lighting it at the lowest levels possible? Because our eyes are incredibly adaptive. We can adapt to very, very low light, light levels. Are you putting the light on a a motion sensor or controller so the security light only goes on when there's someone there, when when you come home and there's a need for it? Uh, And finally, making sure that you're looking really preferentially putting in place those kind of warmer, richer colors that are less damaging to the environment.
0: You mentioned the adaptability of our eyes. I recently read an article by Dr. Mir Schneider, who was born blind due to congenital cataracts and had five unsuccessful surgeries that left him with massive scar tissues to the point where his doctors basically said his condition was hopeless and certified him permanently legally blind. But through years of diligent learnings about what best supports the eyes to function optimally and exercising his eyes accordingly for long hours every single day, he started to gain his ability to see. And today he has 70% of normal vision and even has an unrestricted driver's license in California. Mm. So I give that background just to showcase how personal this has been to him and how he's dedicated his life to studying this subject. But he said, whenever you experience that difference between extremes of dark and light, your pupils become stronger. The pupils of most modern people are very weak because they wear sunglasses when they're outside, which weakens the pupils, end quote. So we often wear sunglasses habitually when we're out or we're just indoors a lot during the daytime, preventing our eyes from adjusting to and working in that brightness. And then at night, we turn on all the lights and prevent our eyes from working in and adjusting to the dark. So in a way, by trying to control our environments, whether by controlling light or even room temperature or anything else, rather than allowing our bodies to strengthen their adaptability, we are really just dulling and eroding away our own resilience and the functionalities of our bodies.
1: That's well said. I mean, our, our eyes are a remarkable instrument. And this is an area that, again, we're learning more more every year about how our eyes Function There have been some studies gone through in the sleep lab out in Harvard, for instance, where people who are legally blind can tell whether the light is on or not, because we actually have different type of receptors in our eyes that are sensitive to non-visible wavelengths of light. So even if the visible aspects of the light, the cones and the rods are damaged, those other sensors are still there. So this is a new frontier in terms of our understanding of our physiology and how our physiology responds to the, the lit environment around us. Every, the more and more we learn about it, the more it becomes clear that light truly is a pollutant in the same way that water gets polluted and, and air gets polluted. So and it's exciting to see that um, knowledge being gained and also to see just the growth and interest in protecting the night from light pollution growing around the world. Strongly in communities in every state in the union, and and dozens and dozens of countries around the world, people coming together and saying, you know, we want better light, and we want to have a view, and an unaided view of the stars again.
0: I'm also thinking about the places in the northernmost or southernmost regions that have really long dark hours during their winters or even perpetual darkness during their winters. How do people within maybe land-based communities in those places get by and work in and navigate the darkness without disrupting their their bioregional wildlife and causing harm? So have they just adapted to being able to work within the darkness much more? Or do they just use light so sparingly that it doesn't really disturb wildlife?
1: That's a great question. I don't know the particulars of the high latitudes there. I, I do know from my personal experience now of, of moving to Tucson, Arizona, which um, does have dark skies, that most of the time I can go outside my home without artificial light because the sky is bright and our eyes are adaptive if you let your eyes adapt if you let them you know if you are patient enough to stand to take a pause as you go outside at night your eyes are a remarkable instruments so and they, they can they, they can get you about and then you add light sparingly as you need it. And you don't have to light your whole yard to be safe going back and forth to your car, for instance.
0: Hmm. One of the other negative impacts you mentioned earlier that we have from light pollution is our inability to see the cosmos. And that's a really interesting point. I know, at least anecdotally, when I get to see the night sky clearly and the moon and the stars are shining so bright relative to the surrounding darkness, it's truly... It's, it's like a really humbling experience. And I genuinely feel a sense of awe at this massive world and a deeper connection to something that's so much greater than I am. What do you think we miss out when we lose our ability to see the cosmos regularly as a collective? And then on the flip side, what can we gain with that reconnection?
1: Losing our view of the skies and the stars and our view of the universe is really the ultimate expression of losing our connection with nature. Mm. Most of the natural world is not here on planet Earth. Um, We are a small dot in in an almost infinite universe. And when people have that experience, I remember vividly going out to Kitt Peak. Just about a, an hour outside uh, the city of Tucson, one evening on a moonless evening, watching the sunset and watching the stars come out. And and, and seeing for the first time really 5,000 stars or more up in the cosmos around us really kind of, um, it's humbling. It's humbling and and it really is and it Awe inspiring and, and in, the, in the true sense. You, when, pe- when you're out with people seeing that, the response is generally the same. It's like it literally takes people's breath away. Mm. There's a great story from Los Angeles during, I think it was the Loma Prieta earthquake when many of the lights in the city went out. Now, Los Angeles, the ultimate kind of urban sprawl with the massive dome of light pollution kind of a veil over the sky. Well, the lights went out. And the Milky Way was up, <laughs> the band of our of our galaxy uh, overhead, and the police department started getting calls, being say, "What's that strange light in the sky? <laughs> what is it?" Because you know, people have no connection, and that's one of the saddest things about this. This, this. this in the U.S., 99% of people live under a light polluted sky. They never have the opportunity to go outside and see more than a handful of stars, and and globally. We estimate 80% of the people in the world live under a light polluted sky and are lacking that connection to the cosmos uh, and to the universe above them. But it doesn't have to be that way.
0: It's also really interesting that socially and culturally, we've become so afraid of the dark that we always want to light up the darkness. And even just the dark in of itself has earned a negative connotation when really there's so much beauty in, in the dark and in our night skies and in that whole this world that we don't really get to experience anymore because we just we want to block it out and we want to light everything up.
1: Yeah, there's an irony here that almost every single culture around the world told their first stories um, through the constellations and, and the stars. And, and not only are we losing our connection to nature, but we're losing our connection to that history. Mm. And without that exposure to darkness, you no, know, people feel unsafe at night and they, they feel that more light will make them more safe. That's precious little good research has been done in this area but it's becoming more and more clear that 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 is a misnomer, more light does not make you safe and particularly these days with bright glary lights what makes you more safe is allowing your body to adapt to the environment outside and also better lighting, quality lighting is what we're looking for again our work here at the International Dark Sky Association is making sure we keep the sky dark it doesn't necessarily mean you have to keep the ground dark but you have to do that in a thoughtful mindful way And part of our goal is to really provide people the opportunity to go and experience places where they can both see good lighting, but most importantly, experience truly dark skies. And there are many places across the U.S. and, and around the world that you can go to international dark sky parks and reserves and communities and really enjoy that deeper connection with nature and the world around you.
0: At a city level, I know that streetlights at night are often justified for safety concerns. Is that a valid reason to keep our nights lit the whole time? Or how can we not compromise safety and security for people while preserving our night skies?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I would say having streetlights is, is not justification in itself to lighting our skies. And again, there are good examples out there. Uh, where cities have come together and they have responsibly lit their streets and they've done it in a very thoughtful manner um, in a way that actually reduces light pollution. Um, for instance, the city of Tucson in Arizona recently completed uh, a retrofit of its old streetlights. Um, they converted them over to new modern LED streetlights because they were interested primarily in the energy savings. But they, they were also extremely concerned about protecting the night from light pollution. And as they retrofitted almost 20,000 streetlights, they were able to reduce the power of those lights, reduce the amount of light that's been put out into the environment. They, they basically, after midnight, they dim them to about 60%. And no one really notices. Most people aren't about those to, at that time. And our eyes, in fact, adapt to those lower light levels. They're, they're well above the standards that the industry recommends. And the net results is um, they estimate every year they're saving a couple million dollars of money each year they're extending the lifetime of the fixtures because they're dimming them down and they have reduced the total lumen budget the amount of light that they're putting out to the city by 63 uh, percent and we have in fact measured the light pollution at a distance the sky boat, from the city and it's reduced by seven percent so there are good examples where people have come together and say look we value this resource, we value our dark skies, but we also want to respect and recognize No, is a city of half a million people, and we need some light in, in the city to keep people, um, you know, moving about and uh, safely, particularly where there's pedestrians and cars coming together. And there are ways that you can do that. Ultimately, this begins at home. I mean, there are things you can do around your home <laughs> to deal with the issue on your home and on your street. And so this is, light Light pollution is, is kind of the ultimate, you know, we, we need to be thinking about this thing globally, but they're really the actions that we're taking are local. And once you have replaced your lights or dimmed them down, you see immediate benefits. We don't have to wait a generation to see the results of these changes.
0: Right. So... There's definitely some things that we can start doing ourselves as individuals around our own homes. And then finally, if we wanted to like talk to our community leaders or political leaders about things that they should enact at a wider scale, what would you recommend that we tell them in terms of what they can do and how it would benefit them?
1: Yeah, there's, there's some great examples of cities who've adopted lighting ordinances, um, either the city or the county or in fact at this, at the state level in terms of making sure that light is, uh, all light fixtures are fully shielded and they're protected down at the appropriate level and there's curfews and other aspects. So there's some great examples there. Always the question is, what's the motivation and the rationale for a city or community to do that? And and I think what we've learned is it's different in different places. In some rural communities, this is really about protecting their quality of life. They value their dark skies as part of of, of their community. So when you're talking to city officials, say it's really about we want to protect the quality of our life and the quality of the environment here. In some other areas, like the turtle beaches down in 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 Florida, some of this being driven by wildlife concerns. So the community is saying, look, we we need to manage this environment because we're really concerned about the ecological impact. Uh, in other cities. Um, you no, know, no, it might be because of the, the astronomical aspects. If you've got an observatory in town, you know, in Arizona, some you know, millions and millions of dollars each year flow through the state because of the astronomy industry. So it's really important for these communities here to protect their dark skies because it's at the foundation, the economic foundation. I was down in visiting with some advocates and supporters in New Zealand. Uh, last year. And there's a strong dark sky movement in in New Zealand. And a lot of these rural communities are are looking at how can we support economic development in our community? And one of the things that people are looking for is opportunities to go and enjoy dark skies. So by protecting their dark skies, they're providing valuable um, dollars into the local community because tourists are coming to enjoy that and they're staying overnight. Um, so there are many different reasons, but ultimately, at the end of the day, we believe that kind of passing responsible lighting laws and ordinances is, is, is what's going to be required to move this because this is really a public good, uh, and that that's has been demonstrated an effective way to protect it.
0: Right. And last thing, you mentioned earlier that globally, light pollution is increasing at about 2% per year, and in some countries, it's 10% per year. What do you think it'll take for us to shift that trend? And I guess, how how would how we go about changing this sort of cultural belief that light is good and that life is safety? And that because I feel like that's part of what's really driving this trend is developing countries, maybe feeling like, oh, this is what the developed countries do for all their streets. So this is what we need to do as well. So wh- what are your ideas on how we can dismantle those myths to turn this around? And then what can happen as a result of us really limiting light pollution?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean a, a couple of things that I think need to occur here. You know, first is we need to provide opportunities for the people to experience the night in uh, you know, all its glory. So to go and experience, you know, take, take a walk in a dark place after night and, and realize that, that you can be safe out there and, and that's it, a wonderful part of our natural world. So that, that that's certainly part of the solution. I believe a lot of it is demonstrating that just because you put lights in place doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to increase light, light pollution, even if we look across existing lit places, different cities different cities with similar populations are using different amounts of light, and that kind of gives certainly gives me some hope that there are there are cities and communities out there who have demonstrated that we can Uh, provide an appropriate amount of light for for the people in our community, but we can do it in a way that doesn't have wasteful light, and it's good for the environment, and it saves us us money. We need to be identifying those case studies and sharing those case studies and and providing tools and resources to um, people in their community. To talk to their elected officials about look, there's a different way of doing this. And you might not care about light pollution, but you might care about um, the bottom line for the city. It's about growing aware, growing awareness. Um, the other aspect of this is, you know, using less light is good for reducing energy consumption. You know, some recent estimates suggested 30 or 40 percent of the uh, electricity spent on outdoor lighting is essentially wasted, and by converting to more efficient fixtures and, and using light appropriately, we can save enormous amounts of energy, and clearly that will have a direct impact on reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, over time.
2: Hey, walk with me, we're under the same sun, with oceans all around, yet it's not, it's not how we should be, many of us fight energy and the I-O-T and water for our brothers. Now the wild is key and the time is here. We must.
0: What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you?
1: Paul Bogard's book, The End of the Night, was a really profound read for me.
0: What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired?
1: Stop complaining and take some action.
0: (laughs) What's one thing you're working on right now for your health?
1: Trying to get out into my neighborhood every day, take a run or go for a bike ride.
0: What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet?
1: I'm working to reduce uh, waste, particularly plastic and food waste, as I do my weekly grocery shops.
0: Mm. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our world at the
1: moment? The questions my kids ask, they're, they're questioning the status quo and wondering why things are this way and thinking that they should be different.
0: Well, to our listener, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Ruskin's work, at International Dark Sky Association, you can head to darksky.org. And you can also follow them on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at IDA dark sky. Ruskin, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. If our listener would like to join this community and support the dark sky initiative, what calls to action would you recommend to them?
1: Well, there's a couple things. One is uh, we are we are grassroots based organization with members around the world. So come and join us. Sign up, come and join us at darksky.org. Um, there are great opportunities at the end of April, April 19th and 26th is International Dark Sky Week. So there are opportunities to go out and participate in this directly around that time. Again, you can learn more at darksky.org. And, and ultimately, it's about taking actions at home. So think about the lights that you have around your home and think about whether you can uh, you, you can take some simple steps at home to both save yourself some money, create a more beautiful environment for your home and do your part, to reduce light pollution.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. And what final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers?
1: It's all connected. So light, light pollution, in our experience, in my experience, is an issue that brings people together. Uh, in this time that's often so divided, it's an issue that people, brings people together across, across different spectrums and it, and it, and it and it's, um, has those immediate benefits. You know, it immediate benefits and, and uh, as well as those long-term impact on creating a better environment for the world. Look what's
2: happening now. Together we will build the future that we need gets the time.